Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Today we hear the music of another classic sequel, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, made in 1989. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. The year 1989 was a big one for John Williams, with three film scores on his plate that year. And it would have been a bigger one if he had been able to fit another blockbuster film into his schedule. As I mentioned with my co-host John Maria Caschetto on the Witches of Eastwick episode, John Williams was considered as composer for Tim Burton's Batman movie at the request of producer John Peters, who was one of the producers of The Witches of Eastwick. Williams had to turn down the offer because the schedule conflicted with his work on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I heard this directly from Williams' mouth at one of his Hollywood Bowl performances, either 2012 or 2013, and I remember a lot of audible gasps when he said that. But there was plenty for John Williams to do in 1989. He was back to work with Steven Spielberg to start the year, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade would be their 10th film together. Though that is a long history together, the two would still need to put in many more years together and make a lot more movies before they could earn the record of the longest director-composer collaboration. And they wouldn't do it until the turn of the century. As you have noticed in the past four or five episodes of this podcast, Williams' compositional style is shifting a bit from the big brassy scores of the late 1970s and early 1980s, even in these big-budget action films. In fact... The Last Crusade is the first true real action movie with the Williams score since Temple of Doom, and the five film scores written between them showed us a softer side to Williams that he seemed happy to continue in The Last Crusade. If you pay attention to the orchestration in this score, you could feel that The Last Crusade is the last score in the bridge between what I would call part one of his golden era and part two of the golden era. The scores in both parts sound different but are just about equally rich in their compositions. We heard the Raiders march a lot in Temple of Doom whenever Indy did something heroic. We've been conditioned to hear the Raiders march when something heroic is done, but in The Last Crusade, it doesn't show up as much. It's mostly replaced by a new melody that Williams wrote for the adventures of the Jones men, Indiana, and his father, Henry. In the film, we first hear it as the Jones men are trying to escape the Austrian castle after Henry Sr. sets the place on fire. Things stay a bit low-key here, with the bouncy melody played on woodwinds. And when we get to the big chase scene with Indy taking his dad on a motorcycle, the melody finally expands into the brass section. Thank you. 
This cue is called scherzo for motorcycle and orchestra. And in musical terms, a scherzo is defined as a playful composition. Even if you didn't know the title, you could feel the playfulness of the piece. That's highlighted in the film by Indy's constant smile as he manages to fight off several villains, all to the chagrin of his father. One more thing about the music for this chase scene. It reminded me musically of the asteroid field from The Empire Strikes Back. Though musically it isn't as thrilling, it keeps the action churning forward with its rhythms and driving brass notes. I know a lot of fans of this score point to the scherzo as their favorite musical moment of the film, but it doesn't hold a candle to the prologue, which I'll talk about in a couple of minutes. Before I get away from the chase scene on the motorcycle, I want to touch on the Nazi theme you heard earlier. It's an entirely new theme, and it makes sense because we have entirely new Nazis to deal with in The Last Crusade than we dealt with in Raiders because, in Raiders, they all died. The Nazi theme gets much more play than the theme Williams wrote for Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it's much more of a march that fits in with the goose-stepping regime that is in full form in this film. Very short theme, but effective. Notice the theme playing in a descending scale, typical of Williams's music for villains. And then there's the theme for the Holy Grail, which is the ancient artifact that everyone wants in this film. The music for the Ark in Raiders of the Lost Ark had a reverent but mysterious tone to it. In Temple of Doom, the music for the Shankara Stones was darker to fit in with the mystery of the magic inside them. For Last Crusade, Williams treats the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus used in the Last Supper, with the utmost respect. Its theme is very stately, never used to scare us, especially since its view is that it gives eternal life to anyone who drinks from it. This is a wonderful theme that serves as the musical centerpiece of the film. Just about every time the Grail is mentioned, this music plays. Our introduction to it comes when Indy and Marcus Brody find Indy's father's home ransacked. Indy realizes that the package he received that day is his father's grail diary, and the discussion of the grail leads to the performance of the theme. When Indy finds the first real clue to the location of the Grail in Venice, inside the tomb of one of the knights who had been guarding the Grail, the Grail theme plays on brass. 
The last theme you heard on what I think is the clarinet was written for the knights who guarded the grill for almost a thousand years. We heard it then because Indy had found the tomb of one of the knights in Venice. And when we meet the 700-year-old knight actually guarding the grail, after a brief comic interlude when the knight fails to fight off Indiana on his arrival, the knight theme stays in the woodwinds. In the knight's younger days, his theme might have been stronger. But going back to the Grail theme, perhaps its best moment comes in its final performance in the film. We see the knight saluting Indiana before our heroes escape the collapsing cave at the end of the film. It starts with an awesome brass statement. Though it's the Grail theme, I think it's our way of saluting and thanking the knight for guarding the Grail before sending him to a well-deserved death. So let's jump back to the beginning of the movie. For the first two minutes, you're not sure what's going on. All we see are Boy Scouts at the Arches National Park in Utah exploring caves. Then two of the Boy Scouts encounter some men unearthing a priceless cross belonging to a former Spanish ruler. It's then that we find out that one of the Boy Scouts is a young Indiana Jones in 1912, played by River Phoenix. The music for the first four minutes feels very similar to the opening music for Raiders of the Lost Ark, very atmospheric, but a little lighter in the instrumentation. Unlike Raiders, this music takes a turn to slightly comical once the action picks up. Indy takes the cross from the presumed robbers and begins a four-minute chase scene that, on paper, is very simple but is made much more exciting by the music. 
Let's hear Williams himself talk briefly about his assignment for this scene. I was talking the other day about the beginning of The Last Crusade, where we have Indiana Jones as a teenager. And I was thinking about this thing, and I think that sequence is actually about four minutes, because I've recently looked at it musically. And it's got, in that four minutes I counted, it's like 55 musical sync points. And what strikes me about that sequence also is that, that we're moving all the time, we're moving on the horse, moving in the car, moving on the train, all this action is taking place as we're traveling. And all the result of some writer's wacky imagination, well, we'll have a train with snakes, you know, in the first two minutes. And that's the whole spirit of all those films. Wow. Imagine having to write music for 55 sync points in the scene. That's a lot of hits that have to go just right. I don't know how many takes the orchestra had to play before they got everything right, but it had to be the toughest part of the recording process. It's great to listen to away from the film, but it is immensely more fun when you hear it in the movie and notice all those precise sync points. The real action begins exactly five minutes into the movie when Indy emerges from the cave looking for help. Finding none, he calls on his horse, and we get a real fun sync point when Indy fails to jump onto his horse, and things just get better as it goes along. The flute performance and plucked brass during the horse jump always makes me laugh when I hear it. Now the rest of the scene is anchored by a playful melody that starts in the woodwinds but always resolves itself in the brass. And when you don't hear that melody, it means Williams is usually dealing with a sync point or setting up for one. Those really kick in when Indy hops onto a train carrying animals for a circus, including alligators and snakes. Here comes my favorite part of the scene, involving a very mad rhinoceros. 
Some of you might have been lucky to attend concerts with John Williams conducting this scene with a live orchestra. I saw him do this at the Hollywood Bowl, and it changed my view on film scoring. First, the scene is played without any music. It was great to see it this way because we saw it as John Williams would have seen it before he set it to music. Then the orchestra played with Williams at the helm, and the scene really came alive. He talked about the moment with the rhinoceros, saying he synced the brass to play each time the rhino's horns burst through the roof, then held the orchestra for a full measure as Indy and one of the robbers looked at the rhino's horn barely missing their private parts. But what was so thrilling was watching Williams keep the orchestra on pace as the L.A. Philharmonic hit every single sync point that night. I bet a few of the musicians playing that night were part of the original recording sessions in 1989. It was a very moving experience for me. So on the soundtrack album for this scene, which is labeled Indy's Very First Adventure, the music for the opening chase scene ends when Indy falls into the car with the lion. The music that follows, however, is just as important because it foreshadows grown-up Indy as he grabs a whip to try and tame the lion. Obviously, the whip becomes a big part of Indy's arsenal. Later on, when Indy has officially lost the battle, the head robber gives Indy his now famous fedora with a really cool statement of his theme. It starts in the woodwinds and quieter trumpets before the scene cuts to grown-up Indy and a much fuller statement to close it out. Oh man, it's such a wonderful opening to this film. It's the best 12 minutes of any of the Indiana Jones films. As those of you who have listened to many episodes of this podcast are aware, Williams' talent for writing musical sync points is my favorite technique of his, and it's on full display in the prologue. And he puts a nice cherry on top by syncing that final chord of Indy's theme at the end with a punch to older Indy's face. So, the prologue is just one of many major action set pieces in the film. Another great action scene is a desert chase involving Indy rescuing his father from a German tank. It's an 8 minute scene, which coincidentally is how long the Raiders desert chase runs. In some respects, Spielberg doesn't look like he's trying to replicate the Raiders scene, and musically there is no question that the Raiders version of the desert chase is far more superior. Now, the music you hear on all commercial releases for this scene are pretty much not heard in the film. Part of what was on the CD was taken out of the film, and another part was looped and played twice in the scene. There's also a three-minute portion of the scene that features music not on the soundtrack album at all. And I don't think those three minutes of music were a last-minute replacement, but rather a choice by Williams to leave this three minutes of music off the CD. And there isn't much music of interest in that part of the score, letting the sound effects take the lead. Mm -hmm. 
The finale of the scene begins as Indy is saved from being crushed on a rock outcropping. For the only time in this scene, we hear Indy's theme as he gets back onto the tank to fight the German general Vogel. And then begins a new melody for the thrilling conclusion that uses trumpets and French horns. The notes slowly move up the musical scale as the tank gets closer to the edge of the cliff, making the tension greater. The music for the scene inside the German blimp is better than it needed to be. It's such a short scene that really didn't need music. In fact, it starts without music. Without it, the scene would probably seem more terrifying than it really is. But the music adds an extra degree of fun, again, a new element to the indie score that wasn't always prevalent before. The glissandos on the strings are what really sells it. And as my co-host David Kay talked about on the E.T. episode, Glissando playing on strings are more at home in a horror movie, but Williams turns it on his ear again and makes the glissandos very comedic. And here, Indy grabs the German officer Vogel and throws him off the blimp, with the second cymbal crash coming just as the Nazi lands on a pile of suitcases.
I am so in love with the no ticket theme. On paper, these notes seem so simple, and that's what makes it great. And of course, if you remember the cherries theme from the Witches of Eastwick, you'll recognize the no ticket theme as a close relative. And one more thing about that scene. Those of you who are fans of the comedy duo Jay and Silent Bob know that this scene was parodied in the movie Dogma, though I suppose they didn't have it in the budget to be able to put in a little musical homage as well. The tank chase scene aside, I'm sure you agree that Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade felt like a quieter score than others in the indie trilogy. But the impact it had was not diluted. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences nominated it for Best Original Score, marking Williams' 20th nomination for Original Score. He was nominated with the very talented field that included James Horner's work on Field of Dreams and Dave Grusin's jazzy score for The Fabulous Baker Boys, though I believe the public's view of that score was tainted by the songs performed by Michelle Pfeiffer. Williams' work on Born of the Fourth of July, which I'll talk about in the next episode, was also a nominee, marking the fifth time he received double nominations in that category. But no one was standing in the way of a first-time film composer named Alan Menken, who was hired to write the music for the songs to the Disney film The Little Mermaid, then decided to write the underscore as well. Menken won the score Oscar as well as for writing the song Under the Sea, and those will be the first and second of many Oscars to come for Minkin. The Last Crusades album sold well compared to the previous two Indiana Jones films, partly because it was the last one and was nominated for a Grammy, losing to Grusin's Fabulous Baker Boys. And how could that album lose when it contained Michelle Fiverr's versions of Making Whoopi and My Funny Valentine? So as John Williams wrapped up his 10th film with Steven Spielberg, he was getting ready to start work on his first of three films with director Oliver Stone. Three years after winning an Oscar for the Best Picture winner Platoon, Stone was back with the second film in a planned Vietnam trilogy. Though he used Oscar-winning composer George Delarue for the score to Platoon, the score took a major backseat to the period songs in the film, and most people would be hard-pressed to recall any underscore in that film. That wouldn't be the case for Born the Fourth of July, really, especially since Stone convinced John Williams to be a part of the project. And we'll talk about that film in the next episode. Well, it's been so much fun talking about John Williams' work on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I'm not sure I'm going to have the same great things to say about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but we'll find out. I've always ranked Last Crusade as third in the list of best Indiana Jones films, but... After discussing the first three films so far, it's actually very hard to decide which one is the best. All three are so wonderful in their way, and the scores certainly fit the films very well. So let's close out this episode, and I hope you'll take some time to write a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, and also take the time to send me your thoughts on the show. I get about a half dozen emails each week from people who tell me their stories of meeting John Williams, how a particular score opened their ears to the genius of John Williams, and what John Williams' music means to them. Sometimes I even read them on a show. Send your emails to jeffswim at aol.com. See you next time, everybody, and until then, the baton is down. Mm -hmm.